Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash The hymn, Son of God, Eternal Savior, the hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, by the way, it goes with the gospel reading, which is Matthew's account of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor for, and all the other Beatitudes. How do those blessings that rightly describe, well, those Beatitudes rightly describe Jesus, how do those blessings come to us, and what does the rest of the Sunday hold built around that iconic gospel reading? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're going to be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. Pastor Sean Denzer joins us. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be here. You wanted to start off talking about ordinary time versus Epiphany. What is ordinary time, liturgically speaking? So this is a term used by the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, it was part of the consideration, certainly for the three-year lectionary, this idea that there are these two seasons where the color is green and where it's not shaped so much by the life of Christ in a very explicit way, where we're observing certain feasts or we're counting our days to and from certain feasts. And it particularly shows up in the three-year lectionary, I would say this Sunday in year A, that we kind of depart from this pattern of Christ's early beginning of his ministry, showing himself as the name Epiphany implies, manifesting his glory among us. And we move into, in year A, for example, his teaching. Year B is slightly different. It focuses more on his healings. So in a way, it's very similar to the old Epiphany season that has a number of healings following the wedding at Cana. Year C, Luke's year, is very similar to year A, where we have the Sermon on the Plain, similar to the Sermon on the Mount. The ordinary time distinction is treated different ways in different lectionaries and in different places. In fact, sometimes you kind of rob from Epiphany and add them to Trinity, depending on uh, how, how far Easter is in the year. But that's the origin of this. And I would say today, as we move on, it definitely feels like we're moving into ordinary time, even if we don't use that term, because our focus is now just going to be cruising through the book of Matthew, particularly this Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. Give us an overview of the propers for today. The gospel is the is the centerpiece, of course, and increasingly, once we move away from a kind of a thematic epiphany season, when we're in this, what is sometimes called ordinary time, we're going to feel that the gospel is the center of gravity and everything else either goes around it or perhaps doesn't care about it at all. There's a trade-off there, right? You can, you can follow the direct biblical connections from chapter to chapter if you're cruising continually through them. But you don't have the kind of selective highlight that may look doctrinally at what's going on in the life of Christ, which is found not only in the Gospels, but in the epistles in the Old Testament, etc. So today we have the beginning of Jesus' teaching. We've been through the baptism. We've seen kind of his call of his apostles to follow him, his disciples. And now we're going to see him begin his teaching, the start of his ministry, and we'll have just the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. We get to hear him sit down and begin. In a way, though, there is kind of a reinterpretation of the Epiphany season that you can find here, because the teaching of Jesus 
of course, reveals who he is. He doesn't teach things that are contrary to his nature or to the nature of his father, whom he is revealing in his person. So as we look at uh, all of the Sermon on the Mount, but maybe above all, this first little section that is well known, the Beatitudes, we will learn something about Christ and see him manifested among us. Are there connecting themes in the propers? Very few. We're beginning to see the trade-off then of those principles that shape this lectionary over against the traditional lectionary. So the epistle is going to diverge pretty much entirely from what we see in the gospel. It's just going to continue through 1 Corinthians while we in the gospel continue through Matthew. The collect, uh, which is drawn consistently across both one-year and three-year lectionaries in this part of the church year, it's unvaried and it won't necessarily match as well, particularly today. And the gradual kind of hangs out there as maybe the last very obvious remnant of epiphany pointing us to that season, along with maybe some of the hymn choices that might still be epiphany-based. But our focus then becomes the gospel reading. That's where the weight is. And we find that the Old Testament reading is almost always chosen as a prophetic anticipation of that gospel reading. And the intro, it often is chosen with the gospel reading in mind too. We'll see that today, for example. And then the psalm, if your church makes use of that extra psalm that's been appointed in the three-year lectionary, that will always be a commentary on that Old Testament reading, which is itself chosen on the basis of the gospel. So with that in mind, this becomes a Sunday then that actually does have a theme arise out of these, and I would say it's wisdom. We see that especially in the intro, as well as in the Old Testament reading. Our Lord's, all of his Sermon on the Mount really is focused on wisdom, and he shows himself to be wisdom for us by it. And therefore, the epistle also has a connection that we can make, even if it's a little bit perhaps not natural. The intro is drawn from the very first psalm. How does it read, and what would you say about it? For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In reality, this is the first psalm, just with that last verse becoming our antiphon that gets repeated before and after the Gloria Patri. This is the first psalm in the whole book, as many have noted, and is an increasing point of interest for exegetical scholars of the Psalter. The Psalter that we have received, all 150 as you find them in the book, they seem to be chosen and selected and arranged probably around the time of Hezekiah, the king. So you have lots of David at the beginning. You have some David up here at key points elsewhere, but you have these kind of five books that are outlined in the Psalter. So this is the, not only the first Psalm, but the first of the five books. And we see that it is focused on wisdom. It's focused on this idea of two ways, the righteous and the wicked. And uh, this psalm, this theme of wisdom, then punctuates the rest of the Psalter as well. It's going to be important for us as we look at Jesus beginning to teach, because he sits down on the mountain, very similar to Moses. He sets out to speak wisdom that is not his own, but is his father's, so very much like the psalmist. And Psalm 1 is unique because it keeps mentioning this man. That has kind of a dual implication for us. So the first way to take it is to understand this is a general description of those who walk either in the way of righteousness or in the way of wickedness. You want to be the man who's in the way of the righteous. But as we go on, especially in wisdom literature, we find that it's it's advocating for what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is pleasing to God, and what is most often beyond the wisdom of men. So we see, of course, throughout various cultures, the Greeks in particular, that human wisdom is able to discern something from this world. And you look at people like Socrates, like Plato, these are wise men. Uh, we would say they got about as far as you could get without the special revelation of God. 
And yet what they got to was a good understanding of ethics, a good understanding of the law of God, of what is a good work and what is a sin against a good work, uh, what is contrary to nature. But the Lord, in fact, reveals that our striving, even our keeping of his law that is revealed to us, does not hit the mark. And thus, we have sin to deal with. And that's an effect of, of wisdom, something that we as Lutherans are very aware of, the fact that the law of God always accuses. That isn't to say it's the only thing it does. It has great instruction. That's the whole point of this psalm. And yet it's impossible for us to hear it and not also have our consciences pricked. That's not a failure of God's word, but it's the failure that's in us that's being exposed by it. Therefore, going along with this, this psalm gives us a little hint that maybe the question to be asking is, well, who is such a man who actually does all these things, who actually sits flawlessly in the way of the Lord, who is always described by this perfection that we see, this growth? So it's a little bit of a hint, in fact, that perhaps we should not only be looking for wisdom to imitate and to grow in, but we should be looking for the one who epitomizes it, the one, in fact, who has done it perfectly, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. It's similar to how uh, offspring is used in the promises of God in Genesis, and Paul picks up on this, and he points out in Galatians that it's not offsprings to many seeds, to many descendants of Abraham, that these promises are assigned. It's particularly to one, and that one is Jesus Christ. What is the collect? Almighty God, you know that we live in the midst of so many dangers that in our frailty we cannot stand upright. Grant strength and protection to support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. You can hear it right there at the end. I've said it before, but so many of these colleagues are formulated in such a way that there's ambiguity whether we're just ending the prayer in Jesus' name through Jesus to pray to the Father, or whether, in fact, it's saying that this petition that we're asking can only be accomplished through Jesus Christ, that strength, protection, support, rescue from danger, that only comes through Jesus Christ. That ambiguity is intentional, and I love it when it, it still comes out in our English translations. This is the very reason that our prayers are always addressed in Jesus' name. Uh, it's by him that we offer these prayers rightly to God and are confident that our Father in heaven wants to hear them and does hear them. This collect, as I mentioned, is traditionally paired with a different reading with the calming of the storm. And in many ways, that fits much better because then we see how these dangers are around us and we can't even stand and we need the Lord's protection and strength. Now, the emphasis that we do still have on our frailty here, I think, can be connected to the wisdom that we're about to be hearing today in a couple ways. One, we are frail. We are darkened. Many people have acknowledged the darkness of humanity, and we know this directly from the scriptures. That means we need enlightening. We're those who, who need the wisdom. If we look at Proverbs, we see that depiction of the wise woman and the perfect wife, in fact, who calls out and says, if you are a fool, come in and, and turn into my inn, and you will drink deeply of wisdom and no longer be a fool. So all of us, all of us in humanity need that. Our weakness is, is ever present. But also, especially as, again, we're looking at wise things, wise sayings and advice from the Lord, and in fact, his commandments that show us his perfection and that show us what is good, what the way of righteousness is for us as well. Uh, there's very little room for any kind of triumphalism or uh, moralism. You know, we're going we're gonna to reach perfection and holiness here if only we uh, just read the psalm a few more times. No, for us as Christians, so long as we're in this flesh, repentance will be daily necessary. The daily our old Adam and our sinfulness will need to be drowned. Our frailty, our weakness, all of our efforts at good works are still just a beginning compared to what, in fact, the Lord's command has, has expressed to us, has, has shown us is true and good and perfect. And so there's always room for repentance, even when we are focusing, in fact, on making an improvement. That's why we always ask God for help. We ask him for the Holy Spirit. And, and the Lord says, how will your Father in heaven not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The Old Testament reading is Micah 6, the first eight verses. Read that for us. 
Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With the calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This passage starts kind of stark that all of the surrounding area, the hills around Israel and everything, are going to hear the Lord's indictment spoken against his people. That's a, especially a feature of Isaiah's prophecy as well. And that's stark. Why is the Lord attacking or, or indicting his own people? Well, because they've strayed. Because, to borrow from our intro, they're not the man. Uh, uh, they've, they've departed from his ways of justice and kindness and humble walking the ways of righteousness. And the Lord wishes to recall, in contrast to this, his salvation, his saving works. He mentions a couple of them. First, we have something that's probably familiar to our listeners from Good Friday, because this comes into the, the reproaches that are spoken or sung often on Good Friday. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? How have I, how have I done you wrong, right? And, and the reply is, well, the wrongs I did you were actually very great salvations, right? What I did was rescue you out of Egypt. Or uh, what's very interesting here, he mentions Balak, the king of Moab, and Balaam, the son of Beor. If you remember, so uh, Moab hears that the Israelites are trouncing the nations on their way to Canaan. And so they want to get a leg up on them. So they, they call up this uh, holy man, Balaam, to curse Israel. And Balaam, of course, is stopped on his way. His donkey won't go any farther because the angel's in the way. And the Lord says, go ahead and, and speak the truth. And when Balaam opens his mouth to curse Israel, all he can speak is a, is a blessing on them because the Lord, in fact, has now got his tongue and is using him, who doesn't seem to be a, an Israelite prophet, and yet now has become a mouthpiece for the true God against Moab and for his own people. So you see this dramatic, undeserved kindness of God that has been done in the past, and the Lord brings this up to recall his people to himself, to call them to repentance. Then in that last section, beginning in verse 6, we kind of get the response, the response from Israel, so to speak. Well, what can I do? What can I do to, to bring myself back? What would make up for this failure? And uh, in the end, it says what the Lord is looking for is not sacrifice and burnt offerings. He's looking for actions in accordance with his wisdom, that he's looking for justice and kindness and to walk humbly with his God. But all of these rhetorical questions, I mean, they do beg the question. They, they, they still left it somewhat unanswered. What in the world can you do to make up for sin? If you, the people of God, rescued out of slavery in Egypt, have now fallen away from him and abandoned him, what has to be done to right this wrong? And it rhetorically asks, you know, are there ever enough sacrifices? If I poured out rivers full of oil, would that be enough? Or quite poignant, should I give my firstborn uh, as a sacrifice for my sin. That's certainly how the opponents, the Moabites and others, would have done it in those days. They would have offered their own children as sacrifices to please their false gods. But the Israelite asked this rhetorically because, one, that's not what the Lord has required. But again, there is somebody who does fit this description. This is, in fact, what God himself will do by offering Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, including the sins of Israel. 
Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. When we return, the psalm that is appointed for this coming Sunday is Psalm 15. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Wednesday, January the 25th, we're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, is our guest. Sean, we come next to the appointed psalm, Psalm 15. Take us into it. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does all these things shall never be moved. So this is very similar, you may recognize, to Psalm 24, which says, who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord and uh, he who has clean hands and a clean heart. So all of this is phrased in the sense of a rhetorical question, who is righteous? Who is the one who's worthy to be present in the Lord's tent? Another way to say that is, what is the character of the person who is blessed of God? And then it goes on to describe it, right? This blameless walking, what does blamelessness mean here? Not slandering, not hurting his neighbor, who uh, suffers for the benefit of others, who avoids wicked people, who isn't profligate with his money or trying to uh, rob other people, who isn't uh, hurting the innocent. Those kinds of people, it states in a very classical wisdom fashion from the Old Testament, those people are in the right path. It will go well with them and they will live long on the earth, to paraphrase from the Lord's own commandments. So rhetorical question, the implication is you want to learn what it is that the path of a righteous man is. That This is the way, so to speak, that leads to the Lord's hill. And we as Christians, they as Jews, ought to imitate these ways. We also will expect the Lord's blessing. This is what pleases him. But at the same time, much like we kind of saw in the past one, was begging the question about atonement, kind of the very uh, argument that the book of Hebrews make, how in the world can you atone for your sins? Well, the priests of the Old Testament weren't able to fully. They needed a sacrifice that was greater that came with Christ Jesus. Here, it's the other side of the question, who truly is righteous? Just as we said in Psalm 1, who is this man who is blessed, who is worthy to ascend the Lord's hill and dwell in his tent forever, and who does at all times perfectly and fully this perfect life of wisdom? The answer to that, of course, is Christ Jesus. All of this is begging the question, if you will, who really fits this description? And as we've mentioned many times already this year, it's the one who is fully Israel, is Israel reduced to one man, that's Jesus Christ, who's about to reveal himself through his teaching. Our epistle for this coming Sunday, 1 Corinthians 1, and we're picking up where we left off at verse 18 through 31. Read that for us, if you would, Sean. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We repeated that verse even, because it really belongs with this one too. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul continues, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world 
to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This verse and this whole section, by the way, is uh, important for us in the Missouri Synod right now this year, because this will be the theme verse, in fact, for our convention that is at the end of July here in the year 2023. So we get a little teaser of it this year, which is excellent. And this is a famous section. We often hear it on Holy Cross Day, I believe, and, and at other times in the year. Paul talking about the wisdom of the gospel that is wiser than all of the things and contrary to all of the things that seem wise to our world. And yet this is how the Lord works almost in secret, subtly in ways this world simply can't understand. Now, his argument isn't directly the same kind of wisdom of the gospel over against the wisdom of the law. So what Paul is not necessarily saying here is that it needs to be grace that saves us rather than meriting salvation through our works. All of that, of course, is true and a main point of Paul's writing. But here he's putting against each other these two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom of God that works under its opposite through low, mean things and the, the death of God, the strange situation that the Lord of life would submit to his creatures to die, uh, that he would lay down his life for those who in fact reject him, that is the wisdom of God. And it's contrasted with all of the things in this world that are loved. So among seemingly foolish things, the grace of God in Christ has to be the strangest of all, that he suffers punishment in place of the guilty, as we said, those who reject him. Uh, he redeems the people who are unworthy of him. That's what seems foolish. And we would say, I would never throw good money after bad. And yet we see that this is the gospel we preach, that the Lord has thrown his own son up on the cross to suffer and to die as a sacrifice to redeem those who are not the man we've been describing so much, who are not perfectly in accordance with God's will and his commands. Those who have to say, what could I possibly offer to buy myself back into good graces, even my own child, even my own life, wouldn't be enough to return to him. Well, the Lord, in his foolishness, has now done just that. In his great grace, he has redeemed us. And Paul's playing with this. He says, you know, even the kind of the dumb thoughts God had, the foolish, the, the weakest things God ever did, are still, in fact, much stronger than men. That should be obvious to us. Therefore, we should not despise this grace, but we should cherish it. We should see that this is the greatest power in all the world. And then he, he concludes with that comment about boasting, which we know also from Romans. Uh, our boasting, whether that's the boasting of our righteousness before God, or whether it's our boasting of what we've accomplished here in this world, in our place, our station in life, all of that has to be set aside. It, it, our boasting needs to be in the Lord, not in ourselves. Paul says elsewhere, what wisdom do we have that we have not received, right? Well, in the same way, what salvation then have we earned and not received also in the surprising way of the Lord's grace, which happens through the crucifixion of his son? In a way, I do think this text ends up kind of fitting nicely with this wisdom. It's a bit of a contrast, maybe, and we have to maybe explain how we get there. But the point remains, the one who boasts need to boast in the Lord for the very same reason that Paul says elsewhere, that it's not our own merits that save us. It's not our own works. Or as Peter says uh, famously in Acts, we who have been trying to keep the burden of the law and the yoke of God's commands for all of these generations have never been able to accomplish it. Are we going to saddle the Gentiles with this too, make them become Jews first and keep the law flawlessly before they can be saved? No, in fact, we're finding out that all of us are saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, by faith in him and trust in what he's accomplished, regardless of our works. So it does make a nice counterpoint to hearing all this wisdom, lest we should think that it's the doing of our own works that is somehow redeeming us or saving us. The verse is not the typical annual verse, but it is drawn from the gospel reading. 
Yeah, so this year we have one that's right from our gospel. Next year and the year after it, we'll have one from those gospels. Again, showing that the readings in those synoptic gospels have taken over and have told the rest of the service what to do very directly. So here we hear one of the Beatitudes chosen out, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Be worth considering why this one instead of any of the other ones, I suppose. But it does emphasize, right, theirs is the kingdom. And this is a key phrase that we've heard a few times already and will continue to hear all through the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of the heavens, or as it usually comes in English, the kingdom of heaven, that this is, in fact, the Lord's coming among his people, that wherever Jesus is there, the kingdom of the heavens is found. And so he is, in a way, revealing himself even in these Beatitudes. We're talking with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. As we look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, on the other side, we'll get into those Beatitudes in the Gospel reading in Matthew 5. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Things Above, that's the theme for this year's hymn sing at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The bridegroom soon will call us. Jerusalem the Golden, Wake Awake for Night is Flying, and a whole bunch more. You don't want to miss it. Making the Case is Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Elective abortion is not and never has been medical care. So wrote Dr. Donna Harrison, a wife, mother of five, and grandmother of ten, and also a pro-life advocate. And she wrote those words in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, in which we take up the issue of the pro-life movement after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Real Reformation Radio. You're listening to Issues Etc. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Have you ever wished you could see Ad Crucem's products before buying them? Well, you can. Come visit us at our workshop in Littleton, Colorado, and watch how we make our Christmas ornaments and print our icons. Check out the quality and fabric of our church banners or choose some greeting cards, posters, or jewelry. Of course, if you can't make it to Colorado, we're always open online. For details and directions, visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Here is a little bit from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January. Dr. Bill Weinrich writing about the man born blind that Jesus healed in John chapter 9. We might then give this summary of the strange and wondrous fact that the man born blind who was brought to sight by the light of the world and was found by him worships the Son of Man in the crucified. The man sees man redeemed and in man redeemed, the man sees the Son of God, his Redeemer. A little bit from the Concordia Commentary on John Chapter 7, verse 2 through chapter 12, verse 50 by Dr. Bill Weinrich. It's the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, and you can find it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. We're looking forward to Sunday morning with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. That brings us to the Beatitudes that you have been mentioning here in the Gospel reading, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. How does it read? Seeing the crowd, Jesus went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It mentions that Jesus sits down on the mountain, he has his disciples around him, and he teaches them in particular. There may also be crowds as well, so who does the them refer to? The disciples particularly, but also the crowds. And then he begins these series of blessed are, that's what the phrase beatitude in Latin indicates. And sometimes it's translated happy or otherwise, but we see immediately how similar it is to that Psalm 1 that we had during our intro. Uh, and we also hear the reflection of all the wisdom in the Old Testament. And when we think about the wisdom of God, when we think about the Lord sitting down to speak, uh, we should think about Moses, first of all, the unique prophet of God, uh, the one who uh, brings the people of Israel out uh, to teach them and to receive the words from God on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Uh, so in, in a very real sense, the Lord himself is now coming to reveal himself as the prophet like Moses, who will be raised up from among them to whose words we should listen. So that, that little instruction that he opened his mouth and taught them is is an indication that we also should hearken to it. We should listen to it as well. The pattern, I mean, this is a beloved section of the scriptures. I think because it is so poetic, it is very poignant. There are many great musical settings of it as well. But it's a, a set of characteristics of those who are blessed and promises given to them. The poor in spirit have a kingdom. The ones who are sad are going to be comforted. That one maybe makes the most sense to us. The ones who are meek, who are simple and small and despised, kind of like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, they're the ones who are going to inherit something great, everything, the whole earth. Those who are hungering and thirsting won't hunger and thirst forever. So many of these things seem very fitting it would make sense that those who are merciful might also receive mercy themselves. Pure in heart should see God. I guess that makes sense. And, and the sons of God are peacemakers. Similar to the wisdom of before, this, this has for us both a command and kind of leaves a question in our mind. So the, the commands are clear of what is desirable, what is a blessed way of life, that we are to be poor in spirit rather than haughty, that we uh, will face much mourning, and that we should look for our comfort from the Lord, that uh, it's not necessarily to take everything for ourselves, to be rich and satisfied and comfortable at all times here in this life, because those who are blessed by the Lord have something greater than that. And especially as we get to the end of these Beatitudes, we see the shift from not just anyone in general, but you, in fact, when you are persecuted for the account of Jesus, that we should rejoice in the same way that the prophets were unconcerned and untroubled by their death because they know they were serving the Lord. Uh, and even if the people were to destroy them, the Lord's word had been served and the Lord is going to take care of his own. So that's maybe the one side of it, and we have much to learn from this and to put into practice our whole lives. But also, it still kind of begs the question, I think, who is such a person? Is this me? Who would fit these conditions? And here, I think we should see, just as we did in Psalm 1, as we did a little bit in Psalm 15, as even that question in Micah kind of provoked to us, Christ Jesus himself is the one who fully fulfills all of this, that he is truly the one who is blessed. He is the one who is righteousness. He is the one who, who is not troubled by this phrase, a peacemaker at all times, or entirely pure in heart. He really is. But, but therefore, in this, he is saying that all those who are in my path will come to receive this blessing as well through me. And as we go on in the Sermon on the Mount, I think we'll see more and more of that, even as it may trouble us at some time, because the Lord's preaching of the law of God can be convicting, as we said, even for the people who delight in his law and wish to live 
a righteous and holy life that's pleasing to God, we still find that there's sin uh, creeping up in us all the time. In fact, in some ways, it's like we're uncovering more of it the more we strive and, and desire the Lord's perfection. This should be a comfort for them, too, that the Lord said, those who are with me are blessed. How should we understand that word blessed? I think it's helpful in English, at least, that it's kind of this passive thing, that someone has actually put a blessing upon you. As it says elsewhere, and he's, as mentions here, what the Lord gives his blessings, they're an inheritance. They're something that are imparted to us, rather than something that's kind of triggered by ourselves or a reward that's natural to itself. So certainly wisdom has that character, and we can just look at the fourth commandment as a great example those who obey their parents have a blessing that's right there. If your parents are obeyed, they won't be mad at you. It has its own blessing that comes naturally by by simply engaging in it. That's why it's good wisdom. It's good advice. I suppose it's not always strictly speaking true. There could be wicked parents who would punish their kids even when they did the right thing. But by and large, this is a blessing that's obvious that, that reason itself could even discover. But this is different kind of blessing. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians, right, that through the wisdom of man, they still weren't able to find God. God was not known in that way. So also through the wisdom of man, this blessedness is not necessarily known because no one would seek to uh, be meek or to be poor in spirit. And, and the whole notion of being merciful, especially if it should actually uh, affect me in any way, or as it says in the psalm, that we should actually take some pain in order to keep our word to somebody else. More and more in our day, we're seeing love turning cold, and that very notion of self-sacrifice is lost. But this is the blessedness of the Lord. This is what he himself has done by his death and by his resurrection, by his incarnation for us. And therefore, that's why it has a unique character, because he's the one who's given it this blessing, and now he bestows it on us by faith in him. That's vital there, that the preacher not just say, this most properly describes Christ on our behalf, but that if you simply leave it there, then we don't get that blessing. That just all goes to Jesus, but he confers the blessing on us. Yeah, the way of service for a Christian is not one of slavishness. We wish to be like our Lord. We wish to be with our Lord. We wish to walk and grow constantly in wisdom. And, but it's such, an, it's, it's such an easy step to ignore the Lord and say, really, this should just be a, a set of simple tricks, especially a, a set of simple tricks that we probably could discover from running our own experiments or something, I, kind of a life hacker kind of thing where you know, somebody found that this was the best time to buy a new boat, so I always buy my new boats in February or whatever it is. That's not the way the Lord's wisdom is, and it's not the way his blessing in these good things comes. It always comes by way of him, that we are connected with him, and that in fact from that then we seek to live in a way that is consonant with him and that he bestows this blessing on us. Sean, what would you say some of the hymns appointed for this coming Sunday, in particular 842 in Lutheran service book, Son of God, Eternal Savior? Yeah, this is the hymn appointed. It's of Anglican origin, and it's in our society section still to this day. It definitely was written in a time when kind of social gospel and social concerns were on the mind in England. And uh, it has that character. It'd be interesting to ask the question what the place of social gospel is in the Lutheran church, which has often been skeptical of kind of this movement. I think our skepticism especially comes if we're looking at the church as a means of helping a broader society that that has nothing necessarily to do with the church. Or sometimes it's been put that there's a general fatherhood of God, usually pretty generically understood, and a brotherhood of mankind that has no distinction at all between believers and unbelievers, the Christian church, and those who are hostile toward her. It's very interesting some of the stanzas that are omitted while they while they press even more so for caring for the poor and those who are in need in the society. It also still is speaking about those within the fold of the church. I think in a sense, what has happened since some of these earlier socially minded or love minded hymns were written is that the belief in God, the 
care about the Christian church and then the love that flows genuinely from the work of our Lord for us, that is the part that has fallen away. And so I, I think as a Lutheran, if we're going to make use of these hymns as our hymnal has, we should simply understand them through the scriptures and not through all of the societal differences that we see. So in particular, that's going to be love is the fulfillment of God's law. Love is what grows out of faith, what the renovation of the heart by the Holy Spirit works in us uh, so that we genuinely care for us. And as it says in the scriptures, especially for the household of God. And thus, this is what we see Jesus explaining uh, when he's caring for the poor, when his gospel, when his message has a concern for those who are the low in society, the low as most people would think of it. Uh, we as Christians don't see it that way. We care for them. We love them genuinely. But all of that flows out of the fact that Christ Jesus, in this most unique way, through his suffering and his death and his resurrection, in our place, to be our righteousness for those who are unrighteous. This is what prompts and leads us to love our neighbor genuinely from the heart. Say something, if you would, about the, I think, increasing need for the preacher of this gospel reading to at least touch upon the reality of Christian persecution, which elsewhere in the world is a genuine physical reality. Although here in the, the West, Christians are generally feeling increasingly at odds and put upon by the institutions of our society. I think we're at an interesting kind of shift. So many have observed, you know, that the church is facing increased hostility. At the same time, others have observed that the hostility is hardly of the sort that the church has faced in the past. Nobody in America seems to be being killed for their Christian faith. Christianity is not outlawed. And yet we're in some kind of middle transition period where in some respects, the Christian church is favored and honored and respected. And in other places, it's increasingly disrespected. And even our population is shifting away from kind of a, even if you're not a Christian or you don't believe any of that stuff, you know, you're not against them to perhaps an air of suspicion against the Christian church. I'm reminded of what it says in Hebrews, where we look to Christ after hearing the great catalog of saints in chapter 11, and we're to look at the fact that he bore hostility against him. And then the, the exhortation is that we Christians would love one another and that we would bear with hostility. And there's where it goes into the discipline section and, and notes that none of us, like our Lord Jesus Christ, have borne hostility to the point of shedding blood yet. I think that passage is fantastic to temper our view of things that when we speak of martyrdom or persecution in the church, it's not a matter of claiming a status of victimhood or seeking pity from the world, but rather it is to acknowledge that those who suffer with Christ Jesus are not forgotten by the Lord, even if the world should forget them. So in a sense, we need to change our expectations and as Peter says in his epistle, not be so surprised when fiery trials come upon us or that we find that people do in fact hate us for matters and teachings that are increasingly close to the heart of the gospel itself. Very few people might disagree with the Beatitudes from a 6,000 foot view, but as we start to dig into them in particular and see how our Lord Jesus Christ lived them out, then perhaps maybe we begin to see the hostility against the church, even for those things that we would call love and good works. With about a minute here, how would you summarize the message of the coming Sunday? Jesus Christ is revealing himself to us, and here we've begun his revelation through his teaching. So he sits down on the mountain as the new Moses, the one of whom Moses spoke, the prophet who would speak, just like Moses did in Deuteronomy, to whom all of us must give attention and listen. And we hear immediately that what he is speaking about is the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven. And we see a description that one is a beautiful and merciful description, especially of how those who are less fortunate, those who are struggling, those who are in this hostile world are often considered to be not worth our attention, how they are lifted up, how they are extolled by the Lord, just as he had many reversals throughout the Old Testament as well. At the same time, we see a description of perfection, of selfless love, 
that does not in every way describe us if we're honest with ourselves. So we see that there is only one who fulfills this. There is only one who is a fulfiller of the whole Torah of the Old Testament as well, and that's Jesus Christ, who is both preaching what is true, but also by it revealing himself as the way and the truth and the life. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Happy Epiphany. We will discuss combating critical theory in our schools, the Joy Pullman of the Federalist, up next. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the new Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The new Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. Open my lips. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting. LCMS.org slash stewardship. Nestled near the spectacular Santa Catalina Mountains in sunny Tucson, Arizona, Catalina Lutheran Church is home to confessional law and gospel preaching and Bible teaching. Join those whom God calls and gathers to receive his gifts for his divine service to us Sundays and Wednesdays and Bible studies most days of the week. Find us on the web at CatalinaLutheran.org. CatalinaLutheran.org. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest, Dr. Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem. Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here, and we love the study of it, and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy, joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology. Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu.